I watch film, but I'd be honest, I mean, when I first started watching film, I was just watching the game. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the UK Packers podcast. Look, it's a Monday. I'm with me old buddy, me old pal, Ryan Peacock, founder of the UK Packers. Do we still need to do the intros, Ryan, for us? I, I don't know. Are we at that stage now? I don't know. Maybe somebody doesn't know who I am. Because, you know, you always have these big stars on, so... Do you know what, Ryan, though? People are obviously are going to just assume that you're a big star, which you are, because you're a guest. Well, you're not really a guest on the podcast. You're a co-host on the podcast. But um, it's just going to look like, geez, he has this guy on all the time. He must be big fry. Well, if, if now you've given me the title of co-host, I'm going to need a pay rise. <laughs> from, so, yeah, from yeah, the zero fee. that we earn to zero. I'll tell you what, I'll double your money. So double by zero, zero. How about that? Yeah, I just need to go away to my accountant and agent and see if that works for us. Which is weird, and that's me as well. I'll be your accountant and agent, so uh, yeah, I'll yeah. broker a good deal with you. Yeah. Uh, right, so as everybody knows by now, the training camp is in full swing, so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be getting into sort of regular Packers news, but what we don't want to do is, is we don't want to just do a Packers podcast for 20 minutes about training camp and no one cares. So what we're going to do is we're going to keep trucking on uh, with the Packers History Podcast, and this one's a little bit different. So what we were doing was we were getting 10 years, so we're getting every decade you know, give or take. So we got 1919 to 1930, 1930 to 1940, 1940, see where I'm going, 1950. But this time what we're going to do is the 1950s was just a just a black period, um, just a bad uh, period for the Packers. It was dark, you know. So what we're going to do is, is we don't want to add the shining light that is Vince Lombardi onto the end for two years. So we're going to do 1950 to 1958. And this might be some grisly listening to all the Packers fans, but... You have to understand how things are bad to understand how things become better and how lucky we are as Packer fans. Uh, Ryan, how would you describe the 1950s when you were looking at it, researching it, and from what you know anyway? Grizzly? Uh, yeah, without a doubt, Grizzly. I mean, this was this was definitely a transition period. I mean, obviously, they wouldn't have... Nobody goes into a transition period intending it to be that, but this this was that. Um a lot of tea, uh, a lot of the players that had been there in the during the forties and that had great success had started to either leave or, you know, get too old or signing for other teams, um, and, you know, but but okay, by the end of the fifties we were starting to bring in the players that they'd go on to shape the sixties and as you said, you know, the the, um, the arrival of a of a certain coach, um, and so on, you know, so the end of the fifties it, it, it certainly sorted out, but definitely. Um, for the most part, it's it's quite a disappointing period in the Packers' history. Yeah, and you know what? I think it is important that Packer fans do know about these periods. You know, we talk about... Now, again, unfortunately, we're going to talk about Bart Starr later in these podcasts, but when he became coach, that was a dark period again. But it's important to know that the Packers did have blips, and we have to really appreciate... Now, again, I don't need to sound too preachy here, but we have to really appreciate what we have now, what we've had since, you know, Favre and Holmgren... Um, because we are very lucky now. So as usual, what we'll do is we'll kick it off, we'll run through the years, give you kind of a flavour, a taste of how things were back then, how the Packers were getting on, some you know nice little funny stories uh, here and there. Uh, but something that stands out to me, Ryan, and something that you're going to touch on, isn't it, that the coaching changes that the Packers had, there was a lot of them and they didn't really go too well. Yeah, I mean, so this was this was a period in which uh, obviously Curlo, Curly Lambeau sorry, has, has, has left town. Yeah. Um, and in comes these next few coaches, and 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 you'll see there's sort of changes where, um, you know, some of the assistant coaches then stepped up and they've looked after the team for a couple of games as someone gets sacked and so on and so on. But the first name that comes in, um, I say once Curly leaves, is a guy called Gene Ronzani. Yeah. 
Um, now, you know, I try. I looked. A, I looked a bit into Gene Ronzani and tried to find out about him. His his record as a coach wasn't great. Um, we certainly uh, had some bleak seasons with him. Um, but I found I read I read some uh, obviously reading a lot of articles and stuff that's already out there, and uh, a name that many Packers fans will be quite familiar with is a guy called Cliff Christie, who's yeah. the Packers historian. Oh, he's brilliant. Yeah, and there's some really good stuff on there. And again, if you want to you know hear something in this and you want to go and learn a bit more about history, definitely go and check him out because it is good stuff. Um, but there's a there's a former one of the bits he's got is he's actually uh, done an interview with a linebacker back in those times. It was called. And I'm going. To, hopefully, I say this right. But Daryl T. Teak, yeah, or T. Teak. So, um, but he, he does an interview with this this linebacker, and I'm going to I'm going to read out obviously the the, the quote that uh, that he that he said he says to Cliff Christie, and he says to me he wasn't a head coach. It was a good thing that he had some assistants around. I didn't think he knew anything about football, or maybe he did, and he didn't know how to convey it. I don't know how the heck he got the job. <laughs> he couldn't give a speech. He wouldn't look you in the eye. He just seemed like a funny kind of guy to me. I don't think the players respected him. At least I didn't. <laughs> no, so kind of come away from the the record there. If if you've got a head coach in place coming in after Curly, now we know that Curly had his fallouts with certain players, um, and maybe Curly Lambeau at times wasn't the most liked coach amongst his players. But I think they, without a doubt, people had a respect for Curly Lambeau. If this is one of the players, then that was playing under this guy, and he's saying, you know, I don't think any of the players respected him. We don't know how the heck he got the job. Um, you know, it's a good job he had some football people around him because we don't feel he knew anything. You know, this is this is worrying. And obviously, he, he, um, I think he, he goes from 50 to 53 in his coaching years. Um, and I think he, he then gets sacked sort of two, two games short of completing the 53 season. But yeah. it just sounds like a very strange appointment if... if if, as this guy was saying, um, they really felt that he knew nothing about football and no one had any respect for him, you know? But I think, you know, people will relate because I know enough of us are out there and we've worked in various office jobs and you've had maybe a manager or two in the past uh, that just doesn't know anything and he just gets you to do all his work. You know, now luckily, Ryan, we're not in that position now, but it's, you know, you'll always have that someone who doesn't know. I've got a few stories about uh, Gene, and again, it's from the players' perspective on what they said about him. Um, and I'll tell you what we do. We'll run through the years, and we'll go through the, the Gene Ronzani era. Now, again, as you said, he wasn't successful in Green Bay. He was absolutely atrocious. And with an attitude like you just mentioned, he's not going to get on too well, especially with pro athletes. His record was 14-31. and 31. So, I mean, you know, just awful record. But I'll tell you what, we'll go from the start. Start from the start. It's always good. 1950. So, you know, this was Gene's first year. Uh, he was he went three and nine. Now again, this was that he allowed the most points in Packer history. He had his rookie quarterback Tobin wrote. He lost his last eight of his nine games. You know, it was down to Tony Canadeo. He retired as well at at the end of the season. You know, I wasn't going to look up for Gene, unfortunately, and it didn't. Um, and what I love as well is is that. Uh, an awful lot of the players at the time saw that Gene was really bad, but when the committee came knocking to say, here, what do you think of him? Um, you know, no one actually gave their honest opinion of him. So 1950, which we covered in the last podcast, atrocious year, didn't get any better. 1951, there were three and nine. Now again, you see, I have to feel kind of sorry for for Gene because he had an aging old squad. Um, he had Tobin Road in there. He was an absolute 
turnover machine, this guy. Now, again, he ended up being consistent when he had good wide receivers, and his offensive line, would you believe, was pretty poor back then, uh, which is a problem that we see now where you can have a good quarterback. Now, I'm going to say his name, don't kill me. Blaine Gabbard, I mean, he was an effective uh, quarterback coming out of college. He went to the Jags, had a really crap O-line. They fell apart. He ended up seeing ghosts and throwing himself on the ground most of the time. Now, people are surprised. Now, again, I'm bringing it to the present day. Apologies. But he's down in San Fran now, and he's beating out Colin Kaepernick for the job. And people are surprised by that, but don't be because he's a good quarterback who had a great career in college. The pros don't always translate. Bad offensive line, yada, yada, yada. We see how it goes. And that was kind of the way Tobin wrote was back then. He threw 29 interceptions in 1951. It was a league worst. They slumped to 3-9. They were fifth in the Western Division. Canadeo, again, retired from football. At that time, he was only the second player in NFL history to rush for over 4,000 yards. I mean, you know, that's a massive loss. So between losing him between 50-51, I mean, you know, most of the stuff was gone. Uh, they lost their last seven games of that season. And I mean, some of them, they weren't even close, Ryan. I'm looking at some of the scores here. I mean, 42-14 against the Rams, 28-7 against the Steelers. And again, I think the blight on his whole era was that they went up against the New York Yanks who were 0-7 that season. So they were just seen as like, you know, the Browns. They were just the worst. So they, they lost to them 31-28. So again, Gene Ronzani doing his best to just scuttle the whole Packers franchise. And they did pretty bad. 52, awful year again. The only thing that went well, really, for uh, Ronzani and the boys back then was, is that Lambeau, who was, we sort of seen in the, the end of the last podcast, he was sort of outcast. He was thrown out. And he went on to Washington and Washington came into Green Bay and wrote, uh, was pulled from the game. But they had a guy that they drafted that year called Babe Perilli. Now, I know you love your nicknames. How about the, how about, how, how do you feel on the word Babe, uh, Ryan, for a dude? We have Babe Root, we have Babe Perilli. Good name, bad name? I think if you can carry it off, oh, then, yeah. then, then, yeah, you're going to be the, the biggest name in the club. Yeah, you see, it stands out. It's like being called Shirley O'Brien. I mean, if I went out, you know, named Shirley and you're a good player, it's going to bode well for you. So Babe Perilli, uh, you know, great guy, shared the quarterback duties. Uh, so he saw Curly Lambeau come back with the Redskins. And because Road had thrown some, you know, pretty bad early throws, Perilli came in and he went seven for 12, three touchdowns, a 90-yard bomb to Bill Houghton early in the first quarter. The game was sealed. So this season, they went six and six. So for the first time, you know, they broke even. And, and it was the first time in five years. And I mean, if, if you look at some of the record that went back before this, it was it was just god-awful. I mean, 47, they, they went 6-5. and five, So that was the last time they did it. 48, they went 3-9. 49, they went 2-10. 50, they went 3-9. 3-9. You know, it's just awful records. They went 6-6 six and six this year. And people thought, oh, God, finally, Ronzani might be doing something uh, well. Uh, but no, he wasn't. He was the slump and he was to get sacked the following year. And in this year, we have Houghton and Perilli. I mean, the two lads were rookies. As we said, Houghton caught that 90-yard touchdown uh, bomb. Uh, so he was fairly reliable. So it looked like the Packers might have started being doing something right. And then we have a guy I mentioned in the last podcast, Ryan, Bobby Dillon. Do you remember this guy? I was talking about blinding one eye. Yeah, yeah, unreal. Oh, yeah, some guy. I mean, he caught 52 interceptions in his history. Um, he played there for eight seasons as a safety. And this guy is interesting as well. But let's bring it back to your boy, uh, Gene Ronzani. It was brilliant, right? And no one would admit to the Green Bay Packer committee back then how bad Ronzani was. But you were quoting 
uh, what they were saying about Ronzani. This is what Bobby Dylan said about him. He said he wasn't the coach. Sounds familiar, right? He wasn't yeah. the coach. He was George Hallis's gopher. It looked like that to us anyway. He came to us from the Bears. And uh, he said that he... Well, I'm, I'm not going to read down through the whole quote. The, the general gist of what he was saying was is that he came from the Bears. Hallis thought he was rubbish. And he was sort of a gophery guy for him. And that's how he made his name was that he was on the Bears roster as a coach. So he, he just told him to, you know, he said he wasn't worth a dang is what he said. So he said at practice, he said Ronzani used to just wander around. You know, he said wander around the field, not really getting involved. And he said he wouldn't ever coach them. He'd leave that to his assistant coaches. Yeah. And he yeah. said, and do you know what's interesting as well? Like, who, who has been the kind of taxi squad for the Packers as of late? I mean, who do we always joke about that just takes the Packers outcast? We have the Vikings, right? Do you know where the Vikings used to just pick up every Packers player and we kind of take the piss out of them for it? Yep. Right, so back then, the Packers were actually the taxi squad for the Bears. So anytime the Bears would cut somebody, the Packers would take them on. And that's typical Ronzani. You know, he's been tossed out by the Bears and he thinks that, oh, well, maybe I can replicate something that Hallis is doing. So anybody who got cut by the Bears, Ronzani used to just take them on as if he was going to replicate. I mean, if Hallis is getting rid of them, they're not going to be very good. And that's exactly what was happening. So Bobby Dylan had some uh, pretty choice words. And th- these guys, that's what's the best about interviewing, you know, ex-players. They don't hold back. So the last year then, 1953, uh, for Ronzani, they were last place in the division. They came in with a two and nine record, which was, I think, it was the worst that record that they had nearly up to that point. But it was to get a whole lot worse. So, I mean, the promise of 1952 was then a distant memory because they went six and six. People thought, oh God, maybe it's looking up. No, not to be. So he was sacked. But they put out the press release. The committee did to say that he resigned. And they put his assistants in place. Now, this is interesting for me, Ryan, because like what you had said, you know, that the assistants were kind of running the team. And like what Bobby Dylan had said, no, the assistants were running the team. So the committee had went around and said to all the players here, listen, what do you think of, uh, you know, Gene? Is he any good or not? But the players stayed loyal to them. And they said, you know, they didn't say this. They sort of get lost, you know, whatever. Make your own decisions. Don't, we're not going to hang him. Uh, but they ended up sacking him. They released the press release, said he walked away. So his assistants were running the team. The team weren't doing great. So because the players never told the committee that the assistants were running the team, they said, no, we have the solution. Let's sack the head coach and, hey, let's put the assistants in charge. And you're kind of thinking, oh, geez, that's the, that's the point in the first place. So again, as you can imagine, Scooter McLean, who I know you're going to talk about later, uh, he took over the team. He was an assistant coach at the time for the last two games of the 1953 season. And they went 0-2. So, I mean, you know, it was it was looking incredibly bad. I wasn't about to get a whole lot uh, better. And, I mean, it was so bad. I, think, I mean, I think everyone will know a player called Jim Ringo back then. This guy, 10, 10-time pro bowler, six times all-pro. He won the NFL twice. He's in the Hall of Fame. The story goes that in 1953, he turned up at the Packers. He was drafted by the Packers. So he turned up at the training camp took a look for two weeks and said, I'm not having any of this. He went home and said, forget it, I'm not doing it. Now again, all the stats that I mentioned, they were almost all lost because he was going to give up on the game. But his family said to him, don't be a quitter after two weeks. They hounded him, were all over him and said, you go back there now with your tail between your legs, get the job. Where else are you going to get a job that pays you about five grand for four months work? So he said, fine, yeah, whatever. So he went back and again, he played, I think it was eight seasons with the Packers, ended up having a tremendous season. I think he was traded then to the... um, Philadelphia Eagles if I'm, if I'm not wrong um, so he became you know a big time player so again 1954 you trumpet sound all welcome Lyle Blackburn I mean Ryan how did he get on uh, 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, he came in, there was a brief stint by Ray Stewart uh, McLean, um, and then this guy comes in as the next permanent installation, if you like. Now, obviously, just, just on, the, on the Ronzani thing, you've got, if, if the, any, for any guy that comes in after a legend, you'll know it watching uh, soccer, you've got, obviously, David Moyes coming in after Alex Ferguson. Yeah. You know, whoever comes in after Arsene Wenger will have a similar issue. So it's always difficult to dislodge that guy. But, yeah, as, as you said... Quite, quite honestly, this this guy did see, didn't seem at all interested, uh, and and that's pretty much what did hang him. As you said, Ray Scott McLean comes in, um, and then we have a guy come in, and I think it's Lyle Blackburn. It is. Um, yeah. I think that's how it's pronounced. And so he comes in, like you said, nineteen fifty four to nineteen fifty seven. Um, things didn't get a whole lot better. Um, he did obviously lose his job after only a few years. Um, However, one of the things he's very much credited for, one thing that he has to be given a lot of respect for, is that he drafted many Hall of Famers that would go on to shape the next 10, 10 years um, and, and, and those famous 60s years under Lombardi. Yeah. For example, um, just some of the guys that he drafted, Forrest Gregg, Bart Starr, Paul Horning, Jim Taylor, Ray Nitschke. I mean, there isn't a Packers fan around that doesn't know all of those names. They're big-time players, and he drafted those, okay? And then even in, even though he was sacked, you know, his last season with the team was in 57. He, it sounds strange, this, but they must have done their draft. Obviously, draft was a lot bigger, and they must have split it into parts because he was still involved in part of the draft in that season that he was then, he then lost his job. So he'd already started drafting for the 58 season. Obviously, he wasn't part of it. Yeah. But they said that... Um, that year, the first four picks are considered by, to be the best amongst any team in league history because whilst he had Taylor and Nitschke, he also brought in then Jerry Kramer and Dan Curry. So, again, more players that everybody knows the names of. Yeah. So, not a particularly good coach. Um, fired after going 3-9 and nine in 57. Um, I think he was asked to resign. Uh, and he basically said, "No, no, no! I'm going to stay on. I can do this. We, we, you know, we're pushing forward." And then he was sacked later on. Um, I think it was actually 58 by the time he got sacked. So, like I say, after after that first part of the draft. Yeah. Um, but yeah, another guy that was unfortunately was quite disappointing on the field. But in terms of maybe knowing, so well, certainly recognizing talent and 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 uh, building, you know, having a positive effect on building that team for the years coming up, he, he was hugely important. Yeah, it's strange to see so many famous names on a roster and it really does show that either Vince Lombardi was incredible to get what he did out of these players because when we look at Bart Starr, for instance, he was drafted in the 17th round. So it goes to show, I mean, not a whole lot of stock was put into this boy from Alabama, but Vince Lombardi chose him as his number one. But it was a strange uh, time again under Lyle because he hit a 6-6 six six in 1955 and people thought it was picking up and then he slumped again. So 1954 he first comes in and this was the first time as well if people are looking at, you know, how the... Because we like to give sort of a nice flavour not only what's happening on the field but what's happening off the field. So in the background now, the general manager was always the head coach. So when Curly Lambeau was there, you know, they had to change all those rules like we said. The committee had to, to try sort of crowbar him away from the organisation because he had a tight hold on it. But they still made that the head coach was 
uh, the general manager. But it's hard to, you know, Ryan, look after all the admin stuff and draft players and, you know, coach the players at the same time and stuff like that. Now, Gene Ronzani himself was sounded like a bit of a space cadet. He'd wander around the field, so he didn't have a whole lot to do with it. So I think to, to sort of negate what happened there for Blackburn, what they did was is they brought in a guy who was an ex-packer to be the general manager. So that was the first time that that was ever done. And his name was Vern Llewellyn. So they brought him in. Now, again, he was sort of a very uh, political guy. So perfect kind of guy for a general manager, you know, going around going around uh, whining and dining. He was the Brown County District Attorney at the time. He was a Republican. Um, but, you know, so he held public office. But then he joined the executive committee first. And then he became the first proper GM. Now, funnily enough... The next GM was going to be Vince Lombardi. They gave him that power, but we're going to see why because of what happened under Scooter McLean. Um, so they gave that to Vince Lombardi between 59 and 68. But uh, Llewellyn was the first guy to be the first uh, GM. And the main thing that sort of he ushered in was is he moved the training facility. So it was at a place called St. Norbert's College. Um, it was where he moved it to in 1958. And they played in Grand Rapids. Like they played in Minnesota from 51 to 53 which is ages away for training and then they moved to Stevens Point College then for another three years again ages away so he moved it a little bit closer then to St Norbert's and apparently people appreciated it so um it didn't go too well in his first year he lost his first three games and people thought oh here we go and then he won four after that they thought yay picking up and then he lost you know another I, I think he lost the rest of the games during that season didn't go too well but then he kind of settled into the job and he went six and six so the team finally seemed a bit more balanced. They Tobin wrote, and he had Billy Houghton again, you know, catching bombs. Uh, in the running attack, they had a guy called Howie Ferguson. He was doing pretty well. So now the running game was good. He had Tobin Rope becoming steady, throwing to Billy Houghton. And then Bobby Dillon, of course, he was doing really well at safety. As he said, as we said, like he was the all-time uh, leading interception dude. And then we had the clay matches of the 1950s was a guy called Roger Zatkoff. Did you come across this guy in your research at all, Ryan? Uh, I've come across him, yeah. Uh, I don't know a great deal about him. Well, here's his nickname, and you like it, Zany Zatkoff. I mean, is that does that grab you? It's it's one of the better ones. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's going to be for a reason. This guy was meant to be crazy. So again, they do like their crazy players. They do like their. Now this guy was absolutely a bit mental, and and I love listening to Bobby Dylan. Bobby Dylan talks about this guy. He said he was brilliant. He said, you know, a lot of people laughed on him because do you ever. Uh, you play sports or, and we've witnessed that, that sort of tag or whatever when we play there's always one guy who tries too hard and you're looking at him going like what are you doing <laughs> yeah. you know he's, and he's a bit too sort of energetic or something that, that's the way Zaney was and people used to kind of laugh at him but this guy said and he, Bobby Dylan quotes the game against Detroit where he went up a guy called uh, uh, Leon Hart was his name so he went up against him and he, he said he used to just smash Leon Hart and he, even if he had the ball or he didn't have the ball Zaney used to just kill him and he said he intimidated him so much that he you know and Leon was a good player so he just couldn't get going that game because Zaney used to just murder him and the pictures I said I wonder did he look Zaney and I looked up a picture of him I mean the picture the, one of the pictures that I found was is his mouth open he's running full tilt and he's got his tongue out I mean this guy did look like he had he looked like what was that movie Ryan with uh, Adam Sandler what is it uh, Waterboy like or something Waterboy. <laughs> that's how I imagine Zaney you know <laughs> it certainly would worry if there was a guy that size running at you with his tongue stuck out with a big smile on his face as he's about to <laughs> pulverize you into the turf but this guy he didn't even have a he didn't even have a smile he's got the furrowed brow he's got big bushy eyebrows you know going hell for leather so again six and six 1955 they looked like they were picking up but then they slumped to f uh, four and eight so they were fifth in the western division which is pretty much last place so he came under pressure now because as you can see the committee fired ron zani they changed the rules on curly lambo back in the day as well so 
I'm getting kind of an undertone, Ryan. I don't know if you sort of read into it as well here, that the committee had slowly started to become more powerful, less patient, you know, and they, they had sort of wielded more power. So again, uh, after losing two of eight games, you know, they, they kind of... Do you get that feeling, Ryan, that the committee, you know, they were kind of scary people back then? I think I think what was probably starting to happen is that they were maybe looking around the league and I think other other ball clubs were starting to do the same thing. Yeah. Um, and so maybe there's a bit of this is now fashionable what we do. They probably also got a little more confident. You have to remember, I think, at certainly under the Curly Lambeau years, that guy had been there, started it. It'd be hard for anybody to come in and tell Curly Lambeau, oh, actually, you know, this is not what we want. You know, it must have been very difficult through those that, that year when, they, when he did move on to a different club. I think, obviously, now... To an extent, everybody on that committee would have had a hand in putting these coaches in, so therefore they're responsible for it. Yeah. Um, and I think so that's why they were maybe felt like a, more of a responsibility then to obviously um, move these guys on or, or get involved when they felt they needed to. Yeah, and I think what we have to put out there as well for the people listening is is there's a number of factors at play here. One, Curly Lambeau overstayed his welcome by a lot, so they wanted to make sure that that, that sort of, you know, tyrannical rule didn't happen now i know that's unfair to curly lambeau but at the very end it did get bad you know and again we had that whole buying of rockwood lodge nearly bankrupted the packers on top of that as well is that the packers are still a small town team they're still very vulnerable and if they do not do well and attendance falls and the stadium can't hold a whole lot of people anyway which means that if they start losing money i mean they really do risk the fact that the packers could be no more so i think that's where the committee stepped in so again 1956 they stepped in and put pressure on Blackburn and said to him here listen you know you've slumped to a four and eight record they drafted a guy called Jack Losh in the first round so they got kind of annoyed that they didn't play he was a running back so they got annoyed that he didn't play him a more and they kind of attributed the four and eight to maybe you didn't play our first round pick enough and that's why you slumped that low but again uh, 1956 draft they drafted Ferris Gregg and in the 17th round they drafted Bart Starr so they had these two stars sitting there uh, you know excuse the pun that they didn't really uh, use and that kind of as you said that that trend kind of carries on we can see that uh, he drafted an awful lot of stars so he was building a team behind it but never either could utilize it or uh, didn't know what he had or it's kind of a mystery until Vince comes in 1957 they go three and nine which again is one game worse than the previous season they're sixth in the western division uh, their first round pick was Paul Hornung and again like we all know to what golden boy went on to do and again if you don't we'll be discussing that in the next podcast a guy from uh, notre dame or notre dame for the americans uh lyle put him in it can you believe this he put him in a quarterback first he didn't know what to do with him he was a first round pick uh first pick he put him in a quarterback he did he had, hadn't got an arm he wasn't strong enough so then he put him in a fullback and he wasn't big enough so they had this paul hornung uh you know absolute hall of famer but they didn't know what to do with him isn't that a bit crazy <laughs> like yeah, I mean, you must. When when they said, "Oh, let's let's draft this guy," you think they might have looked that up first. Yeah, I, I mean, it's yeah, <laughs> and I mean, even in college, he, you know, Wikipedia, and he's and which again, you know, I know me and you kind of don't want to get into these players too much because we're going to talk about them in depth now in the next. We're going to call it the Lombardi Years podcast, uh, you know. But this guy again, he was a star, an absolute standout star in college. But this guy didn't know how to use him. Uh, so 1957 again, woeful record. All these stars. Uh, on board but again Ryan the thing that we have to discuss in this year is not about again the stuff that happened on the field it's about the field itself so uh, City Stadium was built so it was to become Lambeau Field and it was named Lambeau Field in 1965 so 
for eight years it was kind of called the new city stadium because you went to visit it ryan didn't you the old stadium that they used to play in um what, what was it called was it the east high stadium yeah, well, it's. I think it that was that originally just called City Stadium. Um, it was, it's yeah. now it's now based, or to say it's based, it's still the same field, but there's a high school there, and I think it's. I want to say off the top of my head, East Green Bay. Uh, East Green Bay High School or something like that. They play there now, um, and I'll be honest, when you get there now, yeah, you don't really get a feel for that's what it was. I mean, there's there's plaques there. The information is there. It tells you that's what it is, but there's nothing. I imagine sort of back in the day, obviously, there'd have been all the action around it, all the fans around it. It would have been fantastic. But obviously, when I went there, it was it was a you know midweek day, and and you know the school was in, and so it just felt like a school a school track, if you know what I mean. Yeah, um, which is strange. So you didn't get that air of sort of history and awe when you saw the place, thinking, "Oh my God, this is where they first played." No. Not well, no. I've got to be honest. I mean, we went there. It was very cool. We got to walk out on the field. We went out there with a local news team that took us into the school, got us access, and took us out onto the field. And it was cool to be there because you have to imagine the you know the other people that have stood on that turf and and played on that turf. And so that was very cool. And I remember that being good. But it was yeah. I I don't know. There was something. I don't want to say disappointing, but there was something just missing, I think, when I got there. And, and, and it was hard to imagine that's where it all happened. But obviously then, take that trip from there to, you say, as you say, the, the new city stadium, yeah. which then obviously went on to become Lambeau. And, well, you get a feeling for something there, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, because it's amazing, isn't it, that... And, I, and again, it didn't start off like that because 1957 it was built and they slumped to a 3-9 record. But it certainly was of great things to come. Um, and if you if you listen to the podcast and you're going over now and you know now sort of you know the disappointing fizzle out end that came to the East High School pitch, I mean you're you're kind of thinking yeah okay you know this is where the magic happened at the start. But again, I mean if you're over there, by all means give it a visit. So it's definitely definitely got to get down there and go and have a look at it. There are plaques there. There's a lot of information. It tells you about the players that played in the years it was in use, and it's very much worth going down there. Yeah, um, and it's something that we're really looking over, looking forward to going over and seeing because, we're again, I know we say to death, but there's always someone who doesn't know. We're going over again to Lambeau uh, in October and it is not too late to book tickets. And we also have some absolutely crazy good current players and past players that we're going to be meeting over there, plus other people from the organisation, which we're going to announce probably in the next podcast or two. So, stadium was built this year. It was actually proposed, which is brilliant. Uh, by Fred Light and this guy he supervised the construction of the old stadium in 1925 so I think it's it's kind of fitting that he put in the proposal for this new stadium Lambo in uh, 1955 which was exactly 30 years later it cost 960 grand to build it was done by a bond issue again you know and people I think people got this uh, I was looking at newspaper clippings again like we always do um, and it has stuff like oh you built the Packers stadium and it's sort of thanking people for giving the money to build it but again Ryan this is the last year of Lyle Blackburn and as you said you know he got the can and in 1958 uh, we have a one-year coach and I think it's only the second one-year coach in history uh, of the Packers and we have Scooter McLean uh, come in and it didn't go well for poor old Scooter yeah I mean again great great nickname <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I presume it's a nickname anyway it might not be maybe yeah. a middle name but yeah Scooter McLean sounds really cool um, unfortunately not quite so cool on the field uh, like you said, he was only in there for a year. Um, I think he was with the team before he was made the head coach. Uh, and then unfortunately that year he went, I think it was 
the season with the franchise worst, one ten and one record, which gives you a point one two five. So, yeah, it really didn't go well for him. His roster had obviously started to get uh, all pro players, Hall of Fame players in it, um, but unfortunately, he's he's probably his most famous thing um, is just being that guy that paved that that moved aside for Lombardi to come in and. As as a head coach, you don't want that to be the most recognisable recognisable thing about your name. <laughs> no, but, but that is it, and there's really not a great deal to say on him. He's he just he didn't work out as a coach. Um, he he had been with the team, like I say, for a number of years, and maybe he was part of that earlier problem as well. Yeah, I feel kind of bad for Scooter, you know, because again, as you say, he was with the team, he was a coach, but again, he coached the team, the Lewis College, he was a uh, uh, coach of Lewis College, and they dominated, so it was kind of odd that he was, you know, now I know college and the pros are different, but he had experience at the pros, you know, and he was in college and he he trained and coached this Lewis College, college crowd, and, and they dominated on the field. And then when he went to the Packers, it just didn't work out for him. And as you say, he had the worst record ever in Packers history. And again, he it hasn't been beaten, so he was number one in one thing, I suppose. But again, from <laughs> from looking at interviews with players and, and Bobby Dylan, again, I'm going to go back to Bobby Dylan uh, because I think he deserves the recognition. But they asked him, I mean, what did he think of Scooter McLean? And he said that, you know, Scooter tried to be one of the lads. And he said, you know, people have to respect you and not particularly like you. But, you know, it's the age old. Do you ever have that manager, Ryan, who tries to be your buddy? And is like, oh, hey, lads, do you see that girl over there? You know, and you're kind of like, oh, listen, dude, you know, I'm here for you. I know you're trying to be a mate and you're awkward, but, you know, ball me out of it or give out to me or something. I, you know, I, you don't have to be one of the boys. Um, but that's what he was like. He, Bobby was saying that he'd be playing cards with everybody in the dorm, you know, during, yeah. during training camp. And, you know, he says that everyone liked Scooter. He was a nice lad. But like he says, and a quote from Bobby Dylan, you don't have to be liked, but you have to be respected. You know, so they were like they liked him, but they didn't respect him, and that's that's where poor old Scooter went down. Yeah, it makes you wonder if that kind of attitude is what then sort of makes them then go after the type of coach that Lombardi was. Obviously, Lombardi we all know to be a disciplinarian, somebody that's quite strict on the players and quite hard on the players. Yeah, definitely has their back. You know, treats them all like sons, but. He's very, very strict, and things are very black and white in that team. Um, you know, and everybody knows where they stand. Whereas with this guy, yeah, maybe, maybe that's that was his downfall, and that's why then they've gone after the coach they did go after. Yeah, it's a great point because I mean, as much as people you know say about these guys, like we've seen Gene Ronzani and Lyle Blackburn and and Scooter McLean, and it's like if you put all of them together, you couldn't even get one good coach, you know. And it's like the players had to get these bad coaches to really, you know, thirst and yearn for someone like Vince Lombardi and to accept him when he came in. Because, I mean, at one stage uh, during this whole period, I, I think it was the Blackburn period, he allowed the players to self-discipline themselves. I mean, and that yeah. just does not work, you know. I mean, you can't do that. No. Whereas Vince Lombardi came in, and another story that he did was with uh, Bobby Dylan. He was going to retire when Vince came in, and Vince turned around and said to him, no, I want you to come back. So he was like, oh, yeah, well, okay. He wasn't too keen on it because he had a job down in Texas. And again, we're talking about the best safety in Packers history here. And he said to him, I want you to come back. But he had to be late because it was such late notice with him deciding to commit a retirement. So Vince Lombardi apparently called him up 
And well, it was one of Vince Lombardi's coaches called him up and said, look, I know you're coming back and we wanted you to come back, but because you're late, because he said, look, I have to organize my family because I think his wife was pregnant on their second child or something. So he said, I have to sort out, you know, getting a year off from my boss because he worked for a normal company then, you know, to sort stuff out with the missus, to get my family stuff in order before I leave Texas to come all the way up to Green Bay again. So he got a call from one of Vince Lombardi's coaches and said, because you're late, we're going to have to fine you. We're going to fine you $100 per week. And he was like, what? what? He said, you, you wanted me to come out of retirement. He said, well, then you can stick it. I don't want the job. And he was like, oh, no, look, this is just something that Lombardi wants to do. He said, well, screw it. He said, I'm not, I'm not getting involved in this. I'm not, you know, I didn't want to come out of retirement. You're going to fine me for being late. No, I don't want that. So Vince called him and said to him, listen, and apparently this was one of the only times that Vince ever came back from his word. He said to him, listen, he said, Bobby, when you come up to Green Bay, he said, I'm going to write you a check for four and a half grand. I want you to give that check back to me. And it's not going to affect your wages and tell the lads that I find you. And I'm going to put that in the pot of fines. And he said, yeah, okay, whatever. He said, on the one condition, you can't tell them. He said, fine. So he went up to Green Bay. Lombardi wrote him out a check for four and a half grand. He got the check, signed on the back of it. Here you go again. Gave it back to Vince Lombardi. And Vince went, there you go. I'm after finding a player. And Bobby Dillon, for all of the time that he played, and he only revealed it when he got into his 70s, what actually happened. I mean, talk about loyalty to the guy. And that's what I think it was... Um, uh, Cliff Crystal the, the brilliant Packers historian said it to Bobby Dillon I mean like how many players did you tell now for real and he said I didn't tell anybody I kept my word how fantastic a story is that yeah it's brilliant it shows though that straight away there would have been a great respect between them two and obviously a new coach coming into the team would need a player um, to be on side and be that that locker room presence um, but be that leader but also obviously just be a little bit there to support the new coach coming in so I think they're obviously very important for each other. Yes, uh, Vince Lombardi had to keep face with with obviously finding him, um, but certainly it was just as important that for Lombardi that Dylan was there, um, you know, as it was for the team to have Dylan. So it's, it's a nice story there. Yeah, because it's interesting what I find as well, Ryan, about Dylan was is that when Vince Lombardi took over in 1959, he said that Dylan, he studied the tape from 1958. And he said that Dylan was only one of three untouchables after reviewing the tape. So an awful lot of people say, what? So they look at the people that were on the team at the time. And I'm going to name them and see if you can spot who the other two are. And I'm not, I'm not going to say it in this podcast. So we'd Bart Starr, Jim Ringo, Jerry Kramer, Forrest Gregg, Ray Nitschke, Jim Taylor, Paul Hornon. And, you know, Bobby Dylan was one of only three untouchables who were the other two you know and it's it's incredible to think that that's how much respect Lombardi had for Dylan and that's what I wanted to stress about Dylan really and why I've been waxing lyrical about him and why I have some of his signed merch you know and this guy's 84 now he's still alive um is that he's kind of unfor he's kind of forgotten you know what we want to do with these podcasts is is give people the stuff that they might have you know barely touched on some stuff as you said before in the podcast that we know from being Packers fans but also highlight some stuff and some unsung heroes like you brought up the, the excellent story the last time about Smiley Johnson and how he gave his life in war for the Packers you know and it's people like this that we want to highlight and I think Bobby Dylan is one of them and that's the reason why Ron Wolf highlighted Bobby Dylan and why he should be first off you know in Packers Hall of Fame in in the actual Hall of Fame itself and that's why they have you know a shrine even to Smiley Johnson um is because of Ron Wolf and it's people like him that highlight people like Bobby Dylan and like we're trying to do to bring him into the forefront yeah and, and, and it's great to sort of talk about some of these players and as we've done in like the previous podcast and we've mentioned you know some of the bigger players at the time obviously we've already said that the 50s is quite a lean period 
Um, and what we've done is we've been looking at some of those Green Bay Packers players that have then made it into all decade teams and had real big impacts on the league as well as the Packers. Yeah. And in the 50s, this is, again, another indication of just, just how poor it had got. There's only two guys that make that all-decade team. Yeah. Now, obviously, you've been on, on the pods with us and, and those that are listening will know most of the time we're talking about six, seven, eight guys. Now we're talking about two guys. And both of those are defensive players. So we've got nobody on the offense in that all-decade team. The two players we've got here, Lem Ford, um, who's worth a mention, but he was only with the Packers for, in 1958. So he's probably more going to be known and in that team for what he did with other teams. Yeah. Um, maybe he's one of your untouchables in that 58 <laughs> season. I don't know. Um, but he, you know, one thing he did do, which is worthy of mention, is he did help the Browns defeat the Lions 56-10 in a championship game in 1954. That. And he had two interceptions in that game. So he's well worth mentioning just for the fact that he stuck it to the Lions. Yeah. But um, the other one, uh, Emlyn Tunnel, who this is a great this is a great nickname to have this. The offense on defense is what he was called. Because <laughs> um, of so many interceptions or something, wasn't it? Uh, well, it says that he once had more combined interception, kickoff, and punt return yards than that year's leading rusher in 1952. That's insanity. <laughs> okay, and then he retires as the NFL's all-time leading interceptor with 79 picks yeah. and was named All-NFL six times. But again, he was with the team 59 to 61. Yeah. So. This is why these guys aren't having a huge impact during the 50s and and they're probably in those teams because of what they did with other teams. So it's just another indication really of just, just maybe what a poor period that is. Yeah, it is shocking and it's such a contrast then to um, what happened with the Lombardi era and that's why it's so great that you, know, you go from extreme lows to incredible highs. Um, but that really brings us to an end then I know it's only the 8 years it's 1950 to 1958 but we think it's fitting just to cut it there Vince Lombardi again comes in the following year and as they say the rest is history so that's something that we're going to raise on the next uh, podcast so I hope you've enjoyed uh, this podcast with myself and Ryan the two founders of the UK and Irish Packers and I didn't decide to hitches with a bit of Irish this time so you would be you know not readjusting the dial to make sure that you're listening to the right language and um, so again from myself and ryan it's been a pleasure as always let us know what you think of the um podcast and from myself at stdd nfl and at ryan peacock nfl it's goodbye have a great monday <laughs>